Did you know that over 60,000 new tracks are uploaded to Spotify every single day? That's a new track every 1.4 seconds, and that's just on one platform. With so much music now available, it's more important than ever to stand out from the crowd. So it's not surprising that more artists are starting to use less conventional sonic textures in their music, like field recordings. Perhaps you've always wanted to infuse the sounds of nature or your favourite city into your own tracks, but not having the right gear or knowledge might have held you back. Well, if that's the case, you're going to love the brand new guide I just created, teaching you how to start field recording with just a smartphone. And it's all yours for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. Yep, you really do just need a humble smartphone and some minimal extra gear that doesn't have to break the bank to get started with field recording. And I've laid it all out in this handy five-point checklist. So download it for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel and elevate your music to the next level. And then I joined a mountaineering club and um, going out with them. And it was it was one, I think it was in the Pembrokeshire coast and just hearing someone walk along with their harness on, with the climbing gear clinking and chinking and clunking. And I just said, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> there was something about that sound that I was and mixed with the air, of course, of where I was. And so I, I just remembered that and I went, oh, I'm going to make I'm going to make a track using climbing gear. And I finally got round to it. Hello and welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. My name's Isabel and over the last decade, my self-produced and self-released music has amassed over 25 million Spotify streams. I also have a PhD in sonic arts, but I wasn't always this confident with music tech. In fact, I still hear those self-doubt gremlins in my head from time to time. I started this podcast to help more female-identifying musicians start recording and producing their music and learn from other women making music with technology. If that's your cup of tea, then you're in the right place, my friend. Let's dive in. Here's something you may not already know about me. I love all things divination and fortune-telling. I even still have a very beloved, highly charged tarot pack I was given when I was 14. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm under no illusion that we can tell the future or that my tarot pack has magical powers. But I just love the ritual and the playfulness of it all. And that's probably why I made one of the best music quizzes you'll ever take. It's called Discover Your Female Producer Spirit Guide. And in just a few seconds, your answers to my highly specific questions will identify a perfect sister from another Mr. Music Producer to guide you forward with your recording and production. So, are you curious to know your female producer perfect match? Take the quiz now at femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz. That's femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz. Well, hello, knob twiddlers. I trust you're ready for another killer Girls Twiddling Knobs episode. I'm really excited to bring you this one because I'm joined by the wonderful guest, composer, producer and performer, Caro C. And I think you're going to find it fascinating. 
You see, we've gotten to know each other pretty well by now, dear listener, and I have a feeling that inside this week's episode, Caro and myself cover some topics you've likely been thinking about with your own music too. We chat about external and self-imposed pressure to make a splash when releasing your music, the difficulty keeping up the energy a DIY music career demands over many months and years of your life, as well as a fascination with the craft of making music and production techniques too. Caro has a wealth of experiences that she draws from, including her time spent performing on the Berlin electronic music circuit, setting up the Delia Derbyshire Day in Manchester, and also being a researcher on the cult hit documentary Sisters with Transistors, all about the heroines of electronic music. Oh, and she's also just released a stunning new album, Electric Mountain, which has so many sumptuous sonic layers, including recordings of climbing gear. More on that later, though. But I won't keep you in suspense any longer. Allow me to introduce you to Caro. So, Caro, thank you so, so much for coming on Girls Twiddling Knobs. You're very welcome. Lovely to chat to you today. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Um, And we've got so much to talk about, but I think that probably a good place to start is going to be with how you started using um, technology and how you started making music. That'd be great to hear more about that. Cool. So um, yeah, music found me really. Um, I was laid up for a good five years at this particular time um, and thought I'd teach myself to do the two things I thought I couldn't do, which was to draw and to read music. And um, because I was laid up, I couldn't sit at an instrument. Plus I was living in a double-decker bus, so there was no, it was a bit much to have a piano in there. So um, I (laughs) actually inadvertently bought a semi-vintage synthesizer called called the Korg Poly 800. So can I just stop you there, Caro? Inadvertently. Can you explain how that happened? So um, my partner at the time, he was making electronic music. He had most of the Roland between us. By the time we split up, we had most of the Roland drum machines. And um, so obviously there was custody battles involved in that. But um, it all worked out amicably (laughs) in the end. Yeah. But so we just thought, obviously, a instead of just getting a keyboard as in that seemed a bit boring I thought oh, I may as well get a synthesizer and um, and that seemed the best option in terms of getting into synthesis because it's an analog synthesizer that's digitally controlled so all the parameters are a bit more easy to get around when you're just first starting out sort of thing plus you can save your presets and save your Great. programming whereas with the vintage stuff the sort of analog stuff you slightly move something and that's it you've lost your sound haven't you mm-hmm. so again as a beginner i thought that was a nice way of coming into it and um so i had my little teach yourself grade 1 piano and um was doing very very largo very slowly <laughs> and um and then i actually got more into the manual the Korg manual, they really that particular manual was great. It just basically explained synthesis. And mm. I just got really into that and about how waveforms work and, and listening to a lot of warp records kind of stuff at the time in the mid-90s. So it was, you know, Boards of Canada, um, Layla, Myra Calix, all that kind of stuff, and just being like, whoa, <laughs> this world. <laughs> it was like a 
It was like it was a possibility to create your own bespoke language. And that really, really appealed to me. So then I started tinkering uh, mainly. Boyfriend was a very nice guy, but mainly when he was off for big, long walks, which I couldn't do, I'd get all his equipment out, (laughs) start playing on the drum machines and got really into the four track and also using guitar pedals with my voice. So it was all quite dreamy, ambient kind of stuff to start with. And then when we split up, I thought, oh, I quite like this as a hobby. Maybe I'll keep doing it. So we sort of shared the equipment fairly between us. And um, I carried on making music in my bedroom, really. Still still disabled, so still I was able to hold down a part-time job for a bit. But it was very, it was a struggle. And um, I also studied Open University. Used to do, I don't know if they do any more, but it was free courses if you're on benefits. So I thought, well... It was either philosophy or music. And I thought I do enough philosophy anyway in my life, especially while laid up. So let's do music. Why not? And then Mm. I was a linguist before then. So I was like, how does this add up? Then I realized music is another language. So it, you know, it makes perfect nonsense, really. So, um, yeah, just sort of built it up quite intuitively in that way. Wow. So, yeah, so I, I totally see now what you mean by music found you that, you were in a situation where it came to you and for different reasons, it was the right time to explore it. Um, because obviously yeah. it sounds like, you know, your your life was changing because of health reasons, disability, but also you had access to equipment that just wouldn't have been in your life before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then also, yeah. you know, this, this course coming along as well and being able to do that. So, um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how sometimes these situations in our life that are truly, truly challenging and really difficult. There's sometimes these wonderful, well, often, if not always, these wonderful things that come into our life. Yeah, I talk about it as, you know, silver linings to an otherwise can be not so great cloud. But um, but yeah, also there was that thing of I was isolated and I am a, I'm as much extrovert as I am in, I'm introvert. So for me, it was a way to ex- communicate really and express myself really authentically. And I think that stayed with me. And sometimes I kind of berate myself for it and think I should be more formula or I should be more strategic. And, and actually it's just, it's, it's, it is, has given me a sense of belonging that I, I actually didn't have before. And so in a sense, it's, it's once that's there, I can't really stray from that. Mm. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about that feeling of needing to be a bit more formula and strategic? In what sense do you mean? I can imagine, but I'd love to hear in your own words. Yeah, I guess in terms of say, you know, when I started out and um, so I only started sharing my music and with the world, obviously via the internet, which was great because I was, you know, laid up, not able to go out. And if I was able to go out, I would suffer for the next few days and be horizontal. So there was a lot of recovery involved. And in that time, I, you know, there was laptops, thank goodness, there was the internet and I could be still be building my world, my profile from 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 lying down in bed which um looking back was very lucky in that sense of the 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 time that I was operating in and growing in and um it was something about there was often people say oh you know you should just be the front woman you should just be the singer or you know maybe if you just made it a bit more this or sounded a bit more like this person and and I just felt that that's not really what it was about but sometimes I do feel that um there's still a certain amount of strategy, of course there is, because I want to communicate and I want to reach people. I want to connect. So for example, there was a point where I was at sound engineering school 
And uh, we started analysing my voice because the tutor was saying there's something about your voice. It's not out. It's not that it's just out. It's not just out of tune. There's something going on. And so we looked at it and I was banging between. I wanted to be banging between a lot of pitches. So like if I was in the Yemen Republic, <laughs> I was in the Yemeni community, which I've worked with, that would be totally normal because they've got 24 notes in their scale, <laughs> you know, in a lot mm-hmm. of places around the world. So I realised that although I still allow myself to get a bit more feral and microtonal with my voice, I decided from that point, if I want to communicate with more people, I need to be, I need to follow a bit more the the, the societal constructs of what music is in this mm. in the society I'm operating in. So it's almost like I could have gone more dance music. I could have gone more pop. I could have gone more one way or the other, but ultimately I just had to stay true to what, what felt right really. Mm, yeah, I think that's a really good conversation to have. I think that so many people struggle with this. Um, and I think that it's it can be really difficult when you ha- you have made those creative choices because they felt right to you. But then sometimes you, you do look back and you do think, oh, you know, if I'd have just kept it a bit more conventional, maybe my music would have gone further. Or if I had just been that typical front woman, maybe I would have been more successful um but yeah at the same time as I think it's able to look back and go oh I wish I hadn't done that track that's really that I regret or things like that you know which either way it's all part of the the magical mystery tour isn't it that we go on especially as more um (laughs) self-initiated sort of self-driving musicians because you know I really resonate with quite a lot of the stuff you talk about in terms of that courage it takes to mm-hmm. to put yourself out there at the same time as yeah you've got to be realistic of the terrain you're working in and and it is it is a business it's a science as much as it's an art yeah yeah um i think it's full of contradictions isn't it um being an artist but especially being a musician i think because there is a commercial side to it um kind of unrivaled by any other art form really Um, Yeah, it's an extra pressure, isn't there? Because I think about that. I think of like visual artists I know, filmmakers. I think for filmmakers, it's even harder (laughs) because obviously it costs more to do it. But in terms of like just at the moment working on my new album, I realised that I don't, it just doesn't feel right to pay, I don't know, a couple of thousand for a PR company. It just doesn't, I don't know. I don't know why. And Mm. I'm trying to explore Mm. why, because it is a business. You have to just have a product in a sense. I I, I understand that, that by the time it's an album, it's a product and every product has to be, you know, promoted. However, there's something about, I don't know, don't know quite where I sit on that still after 20 years and four albums in. (laughs) Well, do you think it's that you're not sure that there will be the return on it that would make it worth that investment? Yeah, I mean, I do say to others um, when sometimes acts as a mentor sort of for people starting out, I think it's if you, unless you can keep it, really keep up the pressure, you wonder whether it's worth it kind of thing to mm-hmm. to spend that money for, you know, for example, with this album um, that's coming, my album Electric Mountain that's coming out um in june but you know i think it's tomorrow when we go to when you present this that and the first single will be released and it's almost like i've realized that in order to give it more airtime and give it more yeah um shine some light on it really and share be able to share it more fully in the in the area we work in now or in the field terrain we work in now that um that i'm all i'm gonna do stagger singles really Mm -hmm 
probably to the end of the year um, with the what I feel are the strongest tracks kind of thing. Um, and there's something about that if I then do PR, am I doing PR for the whole album? Am I doing it for one single? Am I doing it for all the singles? And I've done, bit, I've, I have employed a bit of PR help in the past, but I just feel unless you're following it up with lots of gigs, uh, loads of, Instagram presence or whatever it is and actually it's it's finding I've got to accept where I'm at and how I actually want to how much of my time yeah. and energy I want to invest in that and how much carbon footprint how much narcissism all that kind of thing I want to get yeah, caught up in yeah. <laughs> I know. I totally, totally get you, Karen. I think it's a really important conversation to have, especially for women and especially for independent women in music, um, because these these decisions and these choices can just be so confusing and overwhelming. But I think you make a good point that you have to make a decision or you have to accept that you'll you'll find a decision along the way of, like you say, how much energy, time, money, narcissism, anxiety you you want to put into this and mm. how much you can. And I think anyone who's had a chronic illness or a disability, like both of us have, um, will know that you that really, really um puts uh put some boundaries down when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you, you no longer have um just infinite amounts of energy anymore. You no longer yeah. have um, you know, infinite amount, infinite amounts of all night, all nighters you can pull. Like it just, it doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah. Um, and in a way, that's a great lesson to learn, I think. And um, it does put those boundaries down, and you do start to see it as okay. It's not just about me spending money here. It's about me spending mental health coins or whatever, and it's about me spending energy and you know energy that I might need to actually feel all right for the next three weeks yeah or even a yeah. year or three years you know yeah um yeah so just to clarify yeah. i'm not disabled anymore thank goodness it's been yeah. the 10th anniversary of a spinal operation that that was amazingly successful um that's wonderful almost miraculously <laughs> successful that's incredible yeah yeah congratulations very, thank you i was oh thanks it's grace um gratitude to the people that helped me get to that yeah. point really and and obviously the surgeons and everything that, that didn't that didn't mess me up in that regard um but also i think um in terms of that uh, maybe it's a getting older thing as well and maybe it's because i'm generally aware of what would I call it? Um, personal development. That sounds really cheesy, but you know, being just self-awareness really and yeah. being aware that, you know, I'm part, I'm just one tiny particle, as I say, in one of my songs, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm just one tiny particle. I'm one tiny point in the web of life. And, and mm. especially right now, you know, we are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction and, you know, and yeah. the, emerg the climate emergency is upon us. And, and I think ecological both you know, um, societally as well as um, environmentally, you know, we, I really do feel it's time for the new paradigm. It's time we yeah. need to shift. So to have, I'm not the most important thing. I don't think my music is the most important thing in the world. At the same time, as I have to balance that with, I want to share it. You know, I've got a couple of friends who don't need to share their music and I, I almost envy them because <laughs> then they yeah. don't have to put themselves through all that. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. And actually, by the time this episode goes out, I'll have re released an episode which is all about if if you worry or you know that your music isn't going to be widely successful, how do you then have the motivation to bother? 
because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of potentially financial investment. It's a lot of tinkering around with bits and bobs that aren't, you know, fitting together properly in whatever way. It's it's a, an awful lot of work and it's a lot of emotion. You have to get yourself emotionally into a place where you can produce meaningful music that other people may connect with. And then to know that that may not, you know, that may get a couple of blog reviews and that's it. And then everyone moves on to the next thing because that is how music works a lot of the time, even if you're a big deal, you know, and then everyone moves on to the next thing and then it's the pressure again to make more music. Um, that So I will have released, I will have put that episode out. I don't know what I'm going to say in it yet, quite yet. <laughs> but, um, but what's your take on that, Caro? I think... Um... Ultimately, I'd guess I'd go with the classic coaching kind of um, approach, which is what are your values? I've got a little, I've, I've wrote down loads and I distilled it down to four. And my Great. four are, they're in my studio. It says respect, freedom or liberty, um, learning stroke growth and courage. So for me, those that why are you doing it why you know it's rem- it's going back to that anchor of why why yeah. you're doing it and um one thing i noticed recently there's a thing called submit hub where you can submit your music to various whether it's spotify playlists or influencers or um what's the other one blogs or uh, music magazines and i had to look through and you just realize there is so much amazing music there's so much amazing yeah. artists out there who all want to be heard and all want yeah. to be. and in a sense it's like it's disappointing because then you you might not get you know you might not get the spotlight that you'd like or the amplification that you'd like at the same time as you're like wow look at all these people doing their thing on their own terms yeah. and we're, we're you know we're a massive creative class if you like or sector yeah. of society and and just thinking of that fertile place where a lot of humans are doing that that I remember sci-fi and you know a couple couple of decades ago that was what progress was meant to be is that we would be able to explore our creativity mm. and our, our imagination and not be caught up in other stuff and and mm. to some extent for some people um, I think that's more accessible you know you get a laptop or an iPhone I just I'm mentoring someone at the moment who is making basically sounds professionally produced on an iPhone yeah so, you Incredible. know, I think it's, um, it's, it's also, I think, again, even 20 years in and for on my fourth album, going through a lot of this at the moment, working out a lot of this terrain. And um, I suppose I'm, I'm, again, I'm only still learning this after I feel like I should know it already, but maybe I'm understanding it on a better level. But it's like the, the because I'm doing creative music and because I'm doing more adventurous, experimental music, uh, more arty, if you like, music that um, I have to remember that's not separate from the rest of society. So it's still it's still running in a sort of capitalist model, patriarchal model, whatever it is. And it's almost like I expect it to be different that, you know, that it's just all about organic this and organic that. And it's like, no, it's, you know, it's if it's still operating within a system. I think there's something yeah. I've understood this time around that there are limitations at the same time as it's more open. So, for example, for me, Six Music has made Radio Play a lot more accessible. You know, Late Junction, which is now yeah. gone, you know, used to support me and a few Radio 3 shows, but now there's, you know, a lot of women at the helm of Radio 6 yeah. and or 6 Music, sorry. And that's things like that make it more possible maybe as an opportunity to um to to be heard and seen no I agree definitely and I think um 
I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's again, it's all full of contradictions. There's there's these little kind of roots in that you almost didn't know were there and they'll kind of pop out of nowhere. And then there's these glass ceilings that you keep bashing your head against and you yeah. know, that's yeah. that's the game, I guess. Um yeah. 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 But really interesting. I think I'm coming back more to community as well and how I've called I call it my music mycelium <laughs> and how especially <laughs> in the last year or so, really being aware of that that wealth really that I have of communities, creative mm. communities that I'm part of. So I've lived in three cities since I've started making music. So Newcastle, then Berlin, now Manchester. And yeah, and I'm still in touch with those communities and those communities are what have nourished me, yeah. nurtured, nourished and helped me flourish in my own model of success really. Mm. Um, and so I might still battle with the obvious parameters of success within music. Like you say, that extra pressure I think you have as a musician. Um, mm. But at the same time, I'm on a day to day, I really am living my, if I have to work, this is the dream of it really. Hashtag living your best life. Definitely. <laughs> and that's thanks to so much of a community that supported me to get yeah. where I am now. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, okay, well, look, let's backtrack a little bit then, Caro. I feel like we've got a bit of ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to you're in a situation where you're doing the, the music course with Open University. You started to get into music and you're really enjoying synthesis and you're learning a lot about that. Um can you then tell me what happens next? Where do you go from there? So I was still on a four track at that point and I remember doing Bach chorales and Mozart accompaniments and it reminded me of cryptic crosswords because I'd never done anything like that before and I was loving it and I'm like, my head was my head was busting with all this music theory. So I was like, right, I'm just going to write something really cheesy, really simple. So I wrote this waltz, my first wonky waltz on the four track live or the each part live. Um, and... And yeah, um, suddenly just thought, shared that with people and they were like, this is magic <laughs> and realising that, oh, OK, like simple music can be effective in a sense. Mm. And it was literally just a throwaway thing, just to, to have a break and have a play. And I think that time of really playing at the beginning, I still remind people that try and get back to that time when you were just playing and you didn't have the pressure of you know, producing something for something or for someone. Yeah. Um, or even the seriousness in a sense. Um, and again, the left brain side of it. So I was playing really, I was playing on my own in my bedroom with, with the minimal, um, technology that was not on a computer. And then, um, once I'd signed up for the open university, they're amazing. I had to give up my original university course, which was languages because I couldn't sit at a table for an exam for three hours. And nowadays that would be illegal, but in those days yeah. it was sort of, I was in no place to challenge anyway. So I, I gave up my degree. And then when I started there, they called me straight away and said, what can we get you? What equipment can we get you to make this more doable? And so I ended up, yeah, they got me a computer and an amazing orthopedic chair, which I still use. Um, and it was like Metropolis. It was built for my body and stuff. It was awesome. Wow. <laughs> and, um, and then also a really good desk and stuff. So I still use that, not the computer, but the table and 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 the chair. And um, and so I started tinkering with um, Cubase, mm. but didn't really know what I was doing. I think I'm reason as well, um, but didn't really gel with it. Um, and it wasn't until 
I was actually in Berlin. That is, is, is silly, but I saw another woman using Pro Tools and asked her to explain a bit how she did it. And then I started on Cubase and that's how I produced my first album. Right. But okay. up until then, I was hardware only and I only started performing um, because I was taking the bus to town one day and that was a bit of an exciting expedition when you when you're housebound a lot of the time. It's like, woo, yeah. I'm going on the bus. And... Um, and yes, and bumped in, it just so happens a friend of a friend um, was on that bus and he said, oh, I hear you do electronic music. We've got an album launch coming. Will you support me? And I said, oh, I'm not ready. And he said, you'll never be ready. And I was like, right then, well, let's do this. <laughs> so the next four or five months, I was just trying to work out, how am I going to translate this to live? How am I going to translate that? And how am I going to do this with only two hands and all the rest of it and then I started getting things like an air synth so I could use my elbow but at that time it was just two hands that's all I had <laughs> mm. and um and I also was doing a sort of spoken word kind of stuff with my voice multilingual as well because I was a linguist so I was getting the French and Spanish in there as well and um and then it came to the first gig and I never forget there the sound check hearing my stuff come through the big speakers and going oh this is how it's meant to sound which was really exciting in the physical sensation of hearing sound especially the lower frequencies but also I remember saying to myself what is your problem Cara why do you need everyone to look at you it was like really psychoanalyzing myself very oh, harshly wow. thinking you know what what you've just been an attention seeker all that kind of mm. stuff yeah this was all doing the sound check and and then I never forget to get tingles now remembering um, as I started to deliver my first vocal of my first track, I suddenly got this feeling of finally I can be me. <laughs> yeah. This is the thing is that we, yeah, it's easy to, I think it's easy to look at people who are performers and presume it's about attention. And I think sometimes it is, you know, and I think it can become that. But I definitely think, especially at the beginning, it's about actually being alive. Like for me, the times when I felt most alive are when I've been on stage. And it's not just about me. It's about being in that room with everyone having that shared experience. Um, I mean, I would say it, even watching other people perform, you know, that's when I felt really alive as well. But there's something about being on that stage and um, mediating that dialogue in that way. That's just so magical. And it's not just about being in control. <laughs> No, well, there is so. that too, yeah. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not yeah. just about that. And I think also, depending on your personality as well, you know, and depending on your experiences, for some people, that's the only time where they get to mediate the dialogue and where they get to just get up on stage and, like you say, show who they really are. And that's so powerful. Yeah, 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 it is. And it is. I think... Um, it also comes back to the art form for me. I never forget Sylvia, Sylvain Chalmé, the guy who did Belleville Rendezvous and a few other beautiful films. And it was a Q&A that you know, I'm one of those nerdy people that watches the bonus bits of DVDs that when they used to have DVDs. <laughs> and there's this woman in the audience going, oh, you're amazing, you're amazing. And he went, ah, let me stop you there. It's not me that's amazing. Let's stick to the art form, not the artist. Yeah, and I think there's really something healthy. about that. There's something in that for me, that's where I started out was like, oh, this art form and what it mm. can do and what I can do within it and how I'm just learning, learning Alice in Wonderland, curiosity, wonder, dedication. Yeah, it just made sense. Um, yeah. And in a sense, I had to learn all the technical stuff. I was a feeling musician before I was mm. a hearing musician. I'd do something and my body would go, oh, that doesn't feel right. And then I had to learn a lot of the pitch stuff. I had to learn, you know, I 
pretty much there now but in terms of sort of the more yeah the more I would say socialized but also contextual technical all that side of it you can learn and I never forget having a vocal coach going you know you're so creative when I started out in Berlin and she said you know make sure you keep that because I can't teach that yeah it's true yeah well well you, you can yeah but yeah there's a not necessarily in a singing lesson yeah 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 um Maybe well, I'm sure you can in a singing lesson as well. But um, yeah, I I but it's a really good point that you. I think it's hard to teach originality. You know, I think that is hard to teach. I think it's because you don't teach it. I think you support it, don't you? You support it and nurture it. That's what you do because, um, like I work with kids, for example, or I work with people starting out, especially young women or non-binary or, or gender minority people who already may confidence-wise aren't aren't on top of the acting at least because <laughs> I think patriarchy doesn't do anyone any favors but yeah. um but yeah um in that terms of it's nurturing it it's giving it space it's making it feel safe and all those kind of things that um that ultimately I do believe that pretty much we've all got it but it's yeah. just it's just that um being allowed really yeah yeah no totally um so so you're in Berlin then what brought you to Berlin um, so I was, I think I'd already done my first EP. I'd done my first EP and then I'd got, that was signed to a little Scottish label, um, Ecstatic Records, which was awesome to have that support. And, um, I guess I just started realizing and was being told that I was pretty much, um, the only woman in Newcastle doing a live electronica there were there's a couple of djs a, a sister duo of djs who were also doing live stuff as well but in terms of just a purely live act getting up doing my thing kind of thing and um a lot of the sort of local media i was getting would mention my agenda it would be in there like the first lady of this or one woman this or and i guess there was a part of me that wanted to test that out in the bigger world kind of thing and I thought well where else would you go but Berlin really <laughs> because at the time mm. I was aware that there was a lot more women doing stuff there and especially electronic stuff so I thought well why not you know I, my back was sort of well enough um, I'd got to a point where I could teach part-time teaching English as another language so I thought well I can teach English part-time and obviously learn German while I was there, which I did learn um, scruffy German while I was there, which was fun. Apparently Berlin hip-hop Deutsch because I was copying the people that took me under their wing. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of I just thought, yeah, why not try it out? I, I, so I applied for an Arts Council travel and training grant and I was blown away when they actually said yes because they believed in me more than I did really. And I thought, well, I'll go for six months. What's the worst thing can happen? I come back again and I had a tiny bit of savings, but I mean a tiny bit. I was li living living uh, hand to mouth, but, um, you know, I was young enough and I thought, give it a go and wanted to test whether I could do that physically as well. I did have to come back partly because, uh, more than partly because of my back, but I ended up staying two years and loved it mainly because it was very chilled city and there's lots of trees. Mm, mm. Yeah, well, it is an amazing city, isn't it? And it's just steeped in so much energy and history and but so much future future looking stuff as well and it is incredible um yeah. and yeah. when i was there it was very affordable to have a flat mm. and um and to be able to work only part-time teaching english and then the rest of the time was dedicated to my music and and there i did 
very quite quickly um, find a creative community there. And I guess in a way you sort of feel a bit more like um, the critical mass when you're not, of course, there's a whole mainstream world out there, but there's enough of a strong community that that's very open and, and easy, easy to access, if you like, and very international. So it's very transient. So it had its, it had its challenges as well as its um, joys, but it was just great to, yeah, for gender to no, be no longer an issue and, yeah, deciding where I fit really. So sometimes I'd be disappointed. I'd realise I was a British snob, sort of never thought myself British before I went to Berlin, if I'm honest, because I'm European. But um, realising yeah. how conditioned I was. So by by the sort of electronica standards, if you like. So it was sometimes when people are there with just a microphone pressing play on a laptop, I'd be like, that's not performing live. That's just karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, yeah. I had to check myself because it was about performance as well. However, mm-hmm. I started to realise, yeah, I found out more about myself by seeing those reflections really identity wise. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's very interesting. And again, something that is so common when you, especially when you're doing some, when you're working in experimental circles, you hopefully, you know, you will come up against stuff that really does challenge your conventions, the things that you don't even realise you're holding onto. Um, and a lot of the time we have these safety. Um, I think a lot of a lot of our identity as artists is about safety. And the more you let go of that safety, the less you have an identity, if that makes sense that you decide I'm this kind of musician or real musicians do this or really serious people who use technology will have to know this. And that's all about making you feel safe. It's not really about whether that's necessary or whether that means anything. And to let go of that means that then you have to let go of an identity or multiple identities. And that's scary, but I think I think it's really, really good if you I don't think we ever quite do it. I think as humans, we'll always cling on to these identities and we have to because otherwise we wouldn't ever really get anything done. But I think it's good to be flexible and let this let it be a bit more kind of malleable and a bit more have less friction. Yeah, yeah. yeah conflicted. Yeah. 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 I hear what you're saying at the same time as I think over the years, I've realised more and more how I respect artists that are dedicated to their craft and and I think I can see when people aren't and that yeah. doesn't really do much for me and it's I, I think dedicated to your craft and courage to be yourself are the two things yeah. that I really admire and respect and, and think I can detect in other artists mm-hmm, mm-hmm. obviously technical skill and you can see whether that's dedication as well and that that, that, that can have its place because music is a science and as much as an art but also so you know looking at the four the four mothers if you like of electronic music your your Daphne Arams your Delia Derbyshire's your um, even Laurie Anderson and you know people who that you just like wow you know they seriously had to be the craft of you know working yeah. with making music with tape let alone with mm. all the accessible tools I've got at my fingertips now but in that sense of not only that that it was the craft of how long it must have taken her to be able to basically mix with no mixing desk, sample with no sampler, synthesize before synthesizers, all these techniques, you know, all the looping and everything and the and the multi-tracking with no multi-track devices, all those yeah. things. And then, you know, at the same time as the societal um, aspects of, yeah, being a woman in that industry. Definitely. Yeah, no, definitely. But I guess, I guess it's what I'm thinking is that that's all true, but sometimes we don't notice craft if we don't understand it. And so you can think, well, that they're just pressing play on a laptop. But like you were saying, 
there's a massive craft in performance and pushing yeah, boundaries true. with performance and yeah, you know true. yeah um yeah but i yeah. i agree i think there's something um that that is something about art that pushes boundaries is is really really mastering you know different types of craft um and if you don't do that you know if you're always winging it then you'll never quite see the potential the how far you can go I think only as I've progressed, I really respect singing, actually. And so, as you know, for some people, it might come very easily to be to mm-hmm. be bang on with what they do. But actually, you know, I think the more the more I've learned that craft, if you like, and um, then the more and the more I've psychologically learned to sing more freely and, and really, you know, connect with my inner song, if you like, um, is is that actually, yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot yeah. going on when you sing and to be in the right place, you know, it's easily, I think people are too easily labeled as divas or, you know, oh, whatever yeah. it might be, you know, just they need herbal teas, but it's like, it is, you, it is, there's so much that has to be in the right yeah. place at the right time for you to deliver a magic performance, no matter how naturally I say that in yeah. speech, as talented you are. I really, I think I appreciate that more, more and more. Mm, yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think, um, it's, it's so easy with singing to just have something throw you off. And like you say, you're, you're trying to manage multiple things. It's that connection with the audience. It's feeling healthy and okay in your body. It's having the energy to, you know, hold that energy up for however much long, because everyone's looking at you, um, not to mention the musical aspects as well. It's, yeah, it's massive. So um, with regards to... Um, yeah, the, the pioneers of electronic music. Um, when did you become aware of these women from, you know, music, electronic music history? Um, for me, it was in the old days of MySpace. So I had a MySpace right. profile and a good friend of mine, DJ Paisan, she had Delia and Daphne in her top friends with the black and white photos of them in their, either their twin sets or their, you know, their smart clothes. And I'd be like, who is that? And listening to their music and being like, whoa, no one told me there was all these ancestors doing weird and wonderful stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and realising that, you know, I was listening to it for music's sake and a lot of it was functional especially Delia's music working for the BBC um, and Daphne's for commissions and adverts Daphne recommend listening to her Lego advert and her Power Tools adverts which are just like amazing but completely out there as well as fun but just realising that yeah that there's a lineage really and somehow that felt reassuring at the same time as you know yeah more than mildly fascinating really and then when I moved to Manchester um, Delia Derbyshire's archive moved here at pretty much the same time. It was donated to the University of Manchester and I was playing at an electronic music festival that used to be called Future Sonic. And uh, my artist liaison guy said to me, you know, you do realise that the godmother of electronic music, her, her archive's just been donated around the corner. And I was just like, no, wow, I have to experience this. And just suddenly this treasure trove sort of opened up in terms of possibilities and I wasn't a student at that point and so it took me a couple of years to pluck up the courage to approach the university 
And I went to speak to um, David, Dr. David Butler, who, if there was a mastermind about Delia, um, he would probably win it. He'd be one of the, yeah, I wouldn't bother if I knew he was there. But, um, <laughs> and he's just, yeah, loveliest guy. And I said to him, how about, I've got this idea. Wouldn't it be interesting if we had like, um, if women artists look back at Delia's work and then created new work in a response to that and you know I said you know do you think that would be possible is there other things already happening and there were some there were some very interesting projects already happening with the archive but basically from that um he said yeah go for it and I just felt like there was this gem of electronic music heritage sitting there on my doorstep that I couldn't ignore really yeah yes so so you you put put together a project then was that Del- the Delia Derbyshire day or did that come later Yes so I invited um two other um musicians and artists I knew of Naomi Kashiwagi and Elish Nirian and I invited them to be part of this and I said do you fancy you know having basically looking in interacting with the archive and then seeing coming up with a creative response really seeing what it produces in you and Ailish is more of a classical um, contemporary classical composer whereas Naomi is more of a conceptual artist a sound artist and me being a bit more let's say standard for this for this um, situation electronica artist so we did that and um, and Ailish said oh why don't we have a let's turn it into a symposium let's turn it into an event let's call it DD day double D day and so we went yeah okay let's do it so we did it right. band on the wall here in Manchester thinking yeah it's a nice thing to do and and the demand and interest was quite phenomenal really it was queues down the street and all the rest of it and um, we had like a symposium in the afternoon which was more you know Delia experts and and we were screening the Delian mode by Cara Blake and there was sort of a QA and a with her and then we had a couple of hours break and then it was just me Naomi and um, Ailish premiering our pieces and we you know it's packed in the afternoon so we thought well you know it's obviously going to die down in the evening we're not big names or anything and it was just as busy in the evening and it was just amazing everyone was really supportive and um, I think we were on the Today programme and the BBC sort of jumped on it and supporting it wow. in that sense. And then we realised, OK, I don't think this is a one off. I think there's more than needs to be done here. And it just sort of grew from that quite organically. And um, and then I went on, yeah, and thought, well, um, in terms of doing bigger projects, we were getting funding from Arts Council, PRS Foundation and all the rest of it. And then I thought well, it would be nice to do something bigger as um as we were progressing, I just thought there's a lot to do education wise. I started teaching electronic music in schools, primary schools, unpacking, deconstructing Delia's realisation of Doctor Who theme. And then the kids would create their own electronic music, um, starting from a found sound kind of basis. And that turned into a 40 school education programme. And it was all just growing that I thought, do you know what? Let's just go for it. And, and David Butler was still supporting us. And we basically, yeah, went for charity status and got it. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Yeah. So, so is, and is that charity, the Delia Derbyshire Day? Yeah. Yeah. That's so that, and so you do year long programs under that charity umbrella. Yeah, yeah. So we have, yeah. um, it's now sort of fixed within the cultural calendar that Delia Derbyshire Day is celebrated on the 23rd of November each year. And that's because that was the date that Delia's realisation of Ron Grainer's Doctor Who theme first beamed into British living rooms. So we're honouring that each year and it will either be online, obviously there's quite a lot of online activity at the same time as we usually have events around that time as well. So last year we had an event at the British Library um, and then here in Manchester as well at Spirit Studios. So yeah, obviously with the, sorry, that was 2019, not last year. Last year was online with interviews with 
various people because there's lots of new material, lots of new art and um, and things coming to light about Delia's life and work yeah, via wonderful. the archive and via, via the cultural, her growing cultural significance really, which is what it was about for me. It was about championing those those um, women that were, that should be part of the narrative of electronic music history. Yeah. So um, I'm just wondering if anyone here is what is listening and thinking, oh, that festival sounds great. Do they have an open call for works? So, um, yeah, we have, <laughs> uh, we're basically, we're not core funded yet. So it comes okay. down to myself and mainly myself, but other, uh, the trustees as well, putting together um, funding applications. And ideally um, every year or every other year, we try and offer artist commissions and um, we do, we have ju- we've just started being able to manage a call out. Um, I think we're going to keep it regional to the northwest of England for various okay. reasons. Um, but yes, we are hoping, depending what happens this year. Yeah, but it, generally we do. So yes, it's worth following us and connecting with us to see what mm. opportunities we can offer because we've realised that's also really important is to offer opportunities to those artists that are a bit more I describe it as dare to be rare which is actually comes from my sister um saying that and again they're daring to be bold they're daring to be themselves and they're dedicated to their craft like Delia was yeah great okay wonderful um yeah I think just thinking about these kind of pioneers of electronic music it's really it's been really interesting kind of seeing these names like Delia Derbyshire is such a almost like a brand now or a a what would you call it like almost a mythical kind of person now when it comes to the the name that everyone thinks of as you know forgotten women in electronic music and then it's Daphne Oram um and and but for me when I was um studying sonic arts and with my own practice the women who who really stood out for me were um, Hildegard Vesterkamp and also Janet Cardiff because, you know, they work with field recording and soundscape composition so much. And they've, I mean, particularly Janet Cardiff has pioneered a whole um, type of sound art of sound walks um, in, in a kind of recorded headphone sense. So it's, but I guess they're still, yeah, they're, they're still very much, you would only know about them if you were into that kind of quite reasonably ex- obscure world of field recording and soundscape composition, although that's it's becoming more and more popular these days. So it's interesting kind of seeing, um, yeah, this type of woman in, in music technology is becoming more mainstream or more kind of, like it's very cool to like Zila Derbyshire is my point, I guess. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's a... It's a. It's almost like a badge of I am aware of um, gender imbalance in in electronic music. If you like Dila Dervishire, yeah, does that yeah. make and sense? I think, yeah, and I remember the first question. One of the questions we got at our first Q and A session was why Delia Derbyshire. To which Cara Blake said, "Well, why not? I can do a film on anything I want." But um, but at the same time, I think it. You might think it's yeah. She there is a danger that she's becoming mythologized she has become mythologized and her one of her very best friends brian hodgson is a consultant for us and that's quite important for me because i didn't know delia and to have that integrity um another of our trustees is also mark Ayres, who's an archivist and who donated the archive and david butler being a 
a researcher at the same time as Jenna Ashton's a heritage, feminist heritage researcher. So they're our tr- board of trustees. And I think in that sense, that's important to remember that she wasn't this perfect goddess human. And I think we have to watch out for that. It's almost the same old thing of sexualizing her. You know, it's sexy. She's sexy because she was clever. And yes, there's a certain element to that. However, she was also, you know, Brian would say she's not always the nicest person to be around because she was human and she had her things going, her demons, whatever, like we all have. But I think there's something about um, it was what she was doing. I think a lot of what she was doing, um, you were only meant to work at the Radiophonic Workshop for three months. So the Radiophonic Workshop was a room, essentially, number, room number 13 in Maydevel Studios at the BBC. Daphne Oram and Des- Desmond Briscoe fought for this little tiny department with very little resources and no real instruments, dare I say, and um, and no access to orchestras or anything um, in 1958. And it really was about chartering new ground. It was like the electroacoustic studio, research studios across Europe and probably in America as well. So it was about chartering that new ground. It was about finding that new language. And in a sense, it was more accessible to women at that time because it was post-war. So a lot of women had done technical jobs. So they were either experienced or it was accepted that they had those skills. And some would say we might might have gone back <laughs> backwards in that sense. Um, yeah. But in, in the sense of why is it a big deal that, that you're a woman doing something? And it's like it's, it's, it's that minority was still there, but it wasn't as, as um, obvious in a sense. So I yeah. think it's putting it in that framework of she was there for 11 years. You're only meant to be there for three months because they said it wasn't real music. It's going to send you crazy because electronic sound was such a feared, really, and and a strange world, new world, new language. That in a sense, the amount of her output over that 11 years, and there is, even though she was churning things out to a deadline and to a brief, that her personality, I think, did shine through. And so, for example, in 1971, there's basically a four to the floor, minimal techno little theme tune she did for a kids programme called Dance from Noah is the name of the piece. And it's, you know, it was it was sort of shared it was on the BBC website or whatever when her archive arrived and and people couldn't believe that this was 1971. They couldn't believe it's not now. They couldn't believe it wasn't a Berlin producer who created it. You know, so so in a sense, it's she's still making waves and she still has that significance. And because she's an accessible, more accessible character, I guess, because of the Doctor Who theme is a, a, still of cultural significance. Now, I'm, I don't watch it, but every primary school I go into, everyone's heard of it. And so in a sense, it's a nice way in. Yeah, so I'm absolutely. working with kids. Most of the kids I work with don't even know what an archive, didn't know what an archive was, don't have any musical education or you know training or parents sending them to lessons or instruments or anything like that so they're coming into it with really fresh imaginations and you know and they'll say to me Delia's inspiring and I said okay why is that she didn't give up you know they know Mm. that she there's a wonderful zine by Karen Hart where she um, tells the story of Delia um, up until making the Doctor Who theme roughly I think and um, and she talks she talks about how Delia went to Decca Records in 1957 um, wanting to get a job as a in the studios and they said the recording studio is no place for a woman would you like a job mm-hmm. as a secretary instead mm-hmm. and so she was basically said no thank you <laughs> and wandered off she's more witty in her response but yeah she um she along with another wonderful pioneer scottish woman called janet beat who i uh, discovered a few years ago experimental composer and 
she calls herself second in the timeline, if you like, in the UK, sort of between Daphne and Delia. And they, you know, they they came up against a lot of, you know, we we talk about yeah. mansplaining now. That's nothing on what they have to deal yeah. with. So, you know, in that sense of yes, within our still quite small world, she might be a very revered and latched onto, let's say, figure. I still think that's important for people to realise that someone can be that significant and and Definitely. and a woman can be that um, respected, really. Absolutely, and and also the thing is, I'm guessing that when you first started the Delia Derbyshire Day, I'm sure she wasn't as well known and well celebrated as she is anywhere near as she is now. You know, yeah. I mean, now yeah. there's, you know, I, am I right in thinking Six Music have done, um, you know shows and days dedicated to her and um you know and she's on the front cover of electronic sound magazine and you know but i'm sure that when you were first putting this together she wasn't a a a brand like that a thing like that yeah 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 and the six music people's playlist that lauren did and um, the marianne hobbs i was on her three minute epiphany so a lot of that might be via our work at the same time as I think it's a lot to do with the archive. And I think, uh, like, for example, Caroline Katz's new film that's about to be on the BBC and there's been some BBC um, radio documentaries. There's been, like, the BBC Proms did their first electric proms, didn't they, where they premiered Daphne Oram's piece, Still Point, that had never been performed. Um, So in a sense, I think it's a sort of, it's part of a movement where... Maybe it, is it us standing up and saying we want to be seen and heard or is it other people, other gatekeepers realising that these people need to be respected and, and honoured really? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'd love to talk about your involvement with sis- Sisters with Transistors, um, but maybe we could talk about your album that's coming out first, Caro. Thank you. So can you tell us about your new album? Because yes. I should say I've I've taken a listen to some of the tracks and what strikes me is just the detail. And I loved in particular the prepared piano sounds and just, you know, there's there's so many um that like like I say, very detailed textures in there. Yeah, I think um I'm at a point in my sound weaving skills where um especially making it last year where I was more isolated I'm very lucky financially to still have enough work um podcast production saved my sonic bacon um amongst a couple of other projects that meant that I wasn't worrying financially I was I'm in a safe home and all the rest of it so you know I was a lucky nest position really where um I had the discipline to keep showing up and making the music and it was my sanctuary it was a creative sanctuary at the same time as I'm at the point now where I get accused of creating 3D sound with stereo and and I really love that. I really want to create a sound world people can step into. And and I hope ultimately that it's nourishing, that it's a nourishing thing for people to do. And so I've got really into, yeah, I have got really into the details and the the placement of sounds, the spectral mm-hmm. spatialization, if I if I can call it that. Emma Margotson said that to me the other day. She's my binaural mixing mentor mm-hmm. at the moment. And she said, Yeah, I like how you have your spectral spatialization. So even frequency wise, I'm mm-hmm. I'm placing all that in in its right space. And um yeah, I guess it's almost I'm a, a becoming more and more filmic in how I make make my music and also again realizing that um it's it is music that is about being in it yeah it's not just 
you know, and, and it's up to people whether they, how they listen to it. But I always say, um, please listen with decent speakers or nice headphones for optimum absorption. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and almost and almost seeing it as a meditation in a sense, um, and and realizing more and more the physical um, properties, magic, power of sound and music, and bringing those together. I think I really, apparently, I bring together the worlds of sound and music quite strongly. I love my found sounds. I love using my voice in a kind of utteration, playing with the different sounds. Um, also, again, very intuitive in terms of the textures. And I know exactly what kind of sizzle or fizzle or whatever something needs or a swoosh or a swish or a swash. And sort of, I love that sort of finding those sounds and loads of automation. So getting really in there yeah. and really getting it to swell and and also trying to get as much, if you like, organic sounds out of technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that kind of almost granular attention. And I think I always associate that with kind of electroacoustic composition. You have to get so granular. Yeah, right. You know, and like you're saying with yeah. the automation, that's that kind of music is where you just you have to get right into the 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 weeds. And that's the art yeah. of it. That's the art of it, is that every single second has been carefully curated and like you say, kind of placed yeah. in different ways. Um, but I can really hear yeah. that, definitely. I see it like sculpture. Mm. I see it like sculpture. And, and also it's a sensual thing. It's a really sensual thing for me to make that music. And whether it's just in, in my lyrics, you know, the magma in me, the magma in you, which, you know, that kind of getting sensual in that sense, or whether it's with the sounds and the spaces between the sounds, dare I say. Um, but yeah, ultimately it's coming from and to the heart, really. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I, I've just been um, kind of looking at also what you've got on your website about the album. You say that um, it's bringing together four elements, fire, water, earth and air, the natural world and how we are part of it. And then in capital letters, you are nature. So can you tell yeah. me about that, Caro? Well, I think sometimes we have this, this is since Descartes and that lot, isn't it, from the Renaissance years that they talk about nature as something separate from us. But actually we are you know, I mean, like we don't switch our bodies on every day, you know, yeah, we charge by sleeping, but you know, we don't, we, we are nature and, and to, to see yourself, it's, it's possibly part of my quest for belonging again, where, you know, I, I try and sit out in the garden as often as possible on the morning, whether I need blankets or whatever. And for, for five, 10 minutes, and I'll just be aware that I'm part of the web of life, you know, and, and if it, and it had this, had this sort of um light bulb moment, which is, blooming obvious but understanding it on a deeper level that without the four elements we would be scuppered Mm. so without fire without water without earth without air all of them it's not like we just need air to breathe we need all those elements to be alive for us to be alive and I think just realizing that interdependency and that interrelation that yeah we are we're not separate from that yeah and that's a beautiful thing as well as a responsibility yeah absolutely and I think that it's a really good point that still, I think maybe even more so now, we separate ourselves from nature. I actually think that sometimes the dialogue around climate change can separate us even further because it feels like we're these these custodians of nature, but we are nature. You know, this is not just about making sure that nature survives, it's about making sure that we survive as part of nature yeah, too. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the age of what I call human supremacy, and I'm not the only one to call it that, but what has been called the human supremacy, I think, I think 
it has to change. Let's see if it doesn't. But I think it would be a good idea to reevaluate that. And at the same time, as you say, yeah, we are, it's all, it's, it's not just, oh yeah, it's one, it's nice to be able to go for a walk in, in a peaceful place. It's like, no, this is an order for our survival. And let's see that maybe part of technology going to Mars off planet, whatever will be that we don't need, we can synthesize, I don't know, McDonald's food so we don't have to cut down the rainforest anymore and be cruel to animals. Yeah. But in the meantime, we really need it. And it is part of the essence of being on this planet. And I just think that that's always enchanted me at the same time as it's sort of, um, it's I've needed that bigger connection mm-hmm. for my own well-being, really. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of climbing in this album then because i know that it's there it's a it's a source of inspiration but it also features in some of the sounds of the album doesn't it yeah so as part of my array of found sounds um i recorded traditional climbing gear which is these big clunky things that you actually or small clunky things that you put in the rock um for trad climbing and i discovered climbing thanks to my back eventually getting better it took three years to recover from um after the operation i had um, which included a lot of walking rehabilitation and pacing and all that stuff and also my nervous system had to recover from the exhaustion and pressure of of trying to keep going for nigh on 20 years so as i was recovering um uh, before when my back was you know a, a problem and i couldn't do much i had a couple of friends who said oh you'd love climbing you've got the perfect physique and you just really enjoy the meditation side of it you know quite strong swimmer's shoulders and all the rest of it so uh so I just thought well I don't give it a go I gave it a go and um yeah really enjoyed it basically and it's quite playful at the same time as it's yeah mentally and physically it's it's it is it is an all-encompassing absorbing activity and then I joined a mountaineering club and um going out with them and it was it was one I think it was in the Pembrokeshire coast and just hearing someone walk along with their harness on with the climbing gear clinking and chinking and clunking and I just said oh that's beautiful Mm. (laughs) there was something about that sound that I was and mixed with the air of course of where I was and so I I just remembered that and I went oh I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a track using climbing gear and I finally got around to it and um yeah, I've made two. One's a bit more Mighty Light Mountain and it's using a lot of the phrases we use in climbing. I'd say it's a bit more feisty and beatsy and warrior, you know, mm-hmm. um, you are Mighty Light Mountain, you are strong like oak and willow. But it was more about um, climb when ready, um, trust your feet, um, about, you know, the sort of the crux moves in life. We talk about the crux move in climbing, which is the the one that actually defines the grade and that's ultimately the most difficult move. And we can all relate to that, I think, through the rest of our lives, those crux moves that we've worked around or worked through. And um, so, yeah, it's sort of transferring that, being playful with that language at the same time as the sounds and the energy. And that first one is quite umphy kind of energy, Mighty Light Mountain. And then the other one is called Shimmering Gear. And that's more the sort of, I guess, the... the the oneness, the meditative kind of aspect of climbing and the humility because, yeah, rock is formidable. Mm. And um, it's I do love being up close to it at the same time. There's moments where I'm like, what am I doing? Why do I have to do this? <laughs> Why do I have to put myself through this? Why can't I just be happy sitting at home, I don't know, knitting or yeah. something? <laughs> you know? And so it's almost like I'm find, you're finding your edges all mm. the time and you're trying to work out where where which edges are the ones you need to listen to or which ones you need to go, no, come on, you can mm. make that move, you can do it, and then you make that move. And it's ultimately, it comes back down to courage, really. It comes And, and that's, I think I find that 
a sort of really exciting space in terms of finding out who you are and what you're capable of. Yeah. Oh, how fascinating. Well, I'm really looking forward to the the full album being released and um and I will put a link to the album in the show notes if anyone's interested to go and take a listen. Um are you going to have any merch on sale, Caro? So we're starting off with, um, we're going to be doing, uh, obviously, Bandcamp. I think it's the first Bandcamp Friday in June will be the main um, album release. And that I'm going to do a USB sort of gift, bamboo USB gift box kind of version, which will include a couple of binaural mixes, which Mm. is 360 degree headphone experience. Lovely. And one of the climbing tracks is in that as well. And um, and then um, also we're doing a CD and eco Digipack CD, um, recycled egg boxes, and then, um, yeah, doing sort of digital sales as well. And then throughout the year, we'll be releasing videos to go along with um, sort of sort of half of the tracks will be singles kind of thing. Lovely, lovely. Okay, well, that sounds wonderful. Um, Okay, well, maybe just to finish off, um, can you tell us a bit about working on Sisters with Transistors for us then? Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful magnus opus, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, So I was recommended via Cara Blake, um, who worked on, I worked with, who made the Delian Mode, a a wonderful creative documentary about Delia Derbyshire. And we worked together around the first Delia Derbyshire Day um, tour and stuff and first project. And um, yeah, she just recommended me to Lisa Rovner, filmmaker, as um, a potential sort of researcher here in the UK because obviously Lisa was trying to get as much of an international perspective as possible. Um, I think it's important to outline there's a lot of limitations with trying to document <laughs> and find footage and, and make a film out of um, women or, you know, non-binary or women women identifying producers, composers, pioneers, mm. because there is very little sort of archival or very little footage and that documentation in that sense. So um, we did go for the two obvious, uh, well, Lisa went for the two obvious uh, characters in England, which are, yeah, Daphne Oram and Delia, which both happen to have an archive Mm -hmm. and both happen to have some BBC kind of uh, material, which I think was key in order to make a a feature film. And yeah, so I basically worked um, as hard as I could to amass as much material for Lisa and um, sort of help her to find her way in the Delia archive, especially um, and also Daphne's ar- archive down in um, Goldsmiths, I think it is, isn't it? And um, so, yeah, did all I could to help contribute to that. And then um, and then it was wondrous to see, um, see it all come together, really. And um, knowing how much work is involved, especially when once COVID had hit, you know, how much work was involved for Lisa to make that happen. And um, also was interviewed. So there's a couple of sound bites from myself and Mandy Wigby, uh, a co um music maker here in Manchester. Great. Wonderful. Um, yeah, it, it is an incredible documentary. And so if anyone has not seen it yet, who's listening, you should definitely go and check it out. Um, the The archive footage of Delia is really, really fascinating, isn't it? Because she actually walks you through and shows you, I mean, it, it, talk about craft, like the, the different tape machines just to get, just to layer what we would do, you know, we would have in a phone, like you were saying earlier these days, it's incredible to see it, the way it started out. Um, and just the amount of time, the amount of space that this stuff took up. Um, yeah. 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 So that, that I found that fascinating. And just, 
imagining having to cut and loop and stick together tape, you know, and then seamlessly. Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, Just... yeah. Well, it took them. This um, depending on who you talk to, I think it's either twenty days or forty days to make the Doctor Who theme, which was at the time I think a one and a half minute piece of music. It's incredible. And there was one bum note, and they took the tape all the way down the corridor and back, and found could see where that one one, one note was. But yeah, I mean, and then to get everything to work together, so she was apparently a, a, a particular dab hand at crash syncing they call it where you get different tape machines to work together there was a syncing device later but early on it was very much about just know know that tape machine well enough that how long it's going to take between you pressing play and it actually yeah (laughs) bouncing it all down and yeah yeah i mean nights and and you know the hours and the hours and that dedication um is yeah is has to be honored i think Mm. because i'm sure she you know sacrificed other parts of her life like Mm. most successful people do (laughs) in order to to make those pieces that you know the doctor who theme does still endure today um yeah in some in some form doesn't it it does yeah no so so that that footage is incredible but what other kinds of materials were you drawing from the archive um you know as well as the film footage so there's the film footage. That's more the BBC archive that would right. have the film footage. Um, the archive here in Manchester has a lot of her makeup tapes. So, um, for example, my res- creative response to the Delia Derbyshire archive um, was in partly a springboard for me was um, a piece where you can hear her sampling her own voice and then she starts to transform that. And as the tape goes on, you can hear that transformation, which oh, was lovely wonderful. to have that kind of insight. Yeah. yeah. And um, and then apart from that, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of notes, like a lot of, her, they look like kind of graphic scores or sketches or doodles. There's all the maths involved. You can see a lot of her mathematics. She was uh, very good at maths as she studied maths and music at, at Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And um, so in a sense, you get that insight of all those other aspects of her work. There's also just references to people. So, for example, uh, Madelon Hukas, who is um, interviewed in the film, um, she worked with Delia when Delia was not meant to be the narrative. The, the mainstream narrative said she wasn't making music anymore, which has now been updated. But there's, you know, and then finding out about yeah. her and then she can then open Delia's story further and so I think in a sense it's a bit of a it opens up a labyrinth in that sense but also there's lots of audio there that um, you know with the permission of the Delia Derbyshire estate that they could use as well. Well dear listener I would say you definitely got a lot to chew on today. We covered so much. A massive thank you to Caro for sharing so many fascinating stories about her journey into playing with sound and making music, the challenges that took her there, the wonderful projects she's been a part of, and her brand new album, Electric Mountain 2. Her thoughts on finding that balance when releasing music between serving the work versus our own ego were gold. And I can totally relate. Sharing your work can be very scary. I also really appreciated her love of musical and technical craft. I feel like this is such an important thing to keep in balance with our sense of play and artistic exploration. Far too often as musicians, we are asked to commit to one box, one reduced identity. But it's clear to see that Caro embraces many different enthusiasms as an artist. From the technicality of sound to the freedom of performance, the delicate balancing of frequencies to the bodily experience of listening and much, much more. 
And if you're itching to hear Caro's new album, Electric Mountain, which dropped on June the 4th, you can check it out at carosnatch.com forward slash electric mountain. That's carosnatch.com forward slash electric mountain. And if you're eager to find out all about the next Delia Derbyshire Day too, go to deliaderbyshireday.com. That's deliaderbyshireday.com. The links are also in the show notes. Now, in next week's episode, I have another ridiculously smashing lineup a live panel on motherhood and music broadcast from Belfast's Women's Work Festival. I'll be joined by three guests who all have a wealth of experience on this topic, and it's a conversation I've been wanting to have on the podcast for quite some time. But I'm going to keep you in suspense for now, dear listener, and not spill anything just yet. Just know that if you want to join us live for this special panel discussion, it's taking place Thursday the 18th of June at 7.30pm British Standard Time online, and places are free. So just check the link in the show notes. You'll also find out more about women's work in general and all the other events at the festival at womensworkni.co.uk. That's womensworkni.co.uk. Lots of links this episode. But till then, take care and I'll catch you here soon. Girls Twiddling Knobs is hosted and produced by me, Isabel Anderson, with production support from Francesca O'Connor and is a female DIY musician production. So, how do you like that episode, dear listener? If you loved it, And you know someone else who would love it too. Be a good friend and share it with them. Go on, spread the girls' twiddling knobs love.